Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. I'm going to keep the introduction really brief today as the audio for today's show is longer than usual. On a normal week, I edit the show down for the one hour radio time slot. And for radio this time, I had to make a couple of tough decisions in terms of cutting it down to meet the one hour requirement of being part of a community radio station. But on podcasts, we have the luxury of time. So you guys get to hear the full event, which is just over an hour. So this is a recording of a discussion held at the Tap Room in Castlemaine. It's a local brewery that offers a variety of delicious beers and pizzas and is a regular host to a variety of a different sort, which is musical and intellectual events. The main attraction on the night of this recording was Tim Hollow, author of the book Living Democracy, an ecological manifesto for the end of the world as we know it. The event was brought together by Democracy for Dinner and was introduced to us by Alex Kelly. And both Alex and Democracy for Dinner will be familiar to those who have listened to Saltgrass for a while now. Then Jim Buckle, a facilitator, mediator and writer, guided us deftly through the night with a light touch. He hosted the evening and asked him a few questions, but quickly offered up the floor to an extended Q&A session with the audience. Not all question and answer sessions are usable for radio. Some are chaotic and others get sidelined or go on very strange tangents. But today's show features one of the most focused and relevant Q&As I have ever recorded, and I was very impressed by the audience. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. And I'm not even going to do an acknowledgement of country, as it was done so beautifully at the event by Alex, and you'll hear that in just a moment. Salt. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. Hi everyone, my name is Alex. I'm just jumping up to introduce the evening. I'm very excited that we're here to discuss some of the ideas in living democracy with Tim Hollow and Jim Buckle. And before we begin, I want to acknowledge that we are on the unceded lands of the Jara people here on Jajawarong country. And probably like most of you, when I move around this country, I'm reminded simultaneously of the impacts of colonization as I see the intense terraforming of the gold mining, but equally reminded of the incredible resilience and continuity of culture of the Jajawarung. And also in acknowledging country ahead of having a conversation like this, which I know that you touch on a lot in the book as well, but if we're talking about different forms of democracy, interdependence and the commons, there's obviously no way to have those conversations on this continent without looking back at the tens of thousands and in fact hundreds of thousands of years of continuity of culture and democracy that's been practiced on these lands. So very happy to be here for this conversation. These two are going to have a yarn and then everyone else can have a yarn. We can get some questions in the room. So thanks for coming, Tim, and thanks for being in conversation, Jim. Thank you. Beautiful. 
Thank you so much, Alex, and welcome everybody. Lovely to see such a good turnout tonight. Thanks so much to Jack and Doug for hosting us here at the Tap Room, and to Democracy for Dinner for being co-hosts of this event. I'd like to just let you know what we're going to do tonight. We are going to have a little bit of audience participation after Tim speaks, and we're going to have questions from you and some, some from me, and we'll lead the conversation, but we're very much interested in what you have to say, any thoughts that you have too. And this is participatory democracy in action, which is what we're all about, yeah? Tim is a musician. Tim is a writer. Clearly, he's an author. Tim is a community activist. Tim has been involved in politics. He's also the executive director of the Green Institute. He brings all of those things together, I think, very effectively in this book. We're going to hear him read from that book, and he's going to talk a little bit before Tim take it away. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jim and Alex and Jack and Doug for having us and all of you for coming along. I also want to start by acknowledging that we are on stolen land. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I want to acknowledge, as Alex says, that there's just so much that we need to learn, particularly on this continent, but really all around the world from Indigenous ways of being and doing. And I want to acknowledge a, a, a few people, particularly the wonderful Janara Goring Goring, the, the extraordinary Auntie Mary Graham and the brilliant Tyson Yunker Porter, all of whom have taught me a tremendous amount about Indigenous ways of being and doing that we desperately need to open our ears and our hearts to and learn from if we're to be able to come through the coming decades, really. This is what this book really is fundamentally about. The subtitle of Living Democracy is an ecological manifesto for the end of the world as we know it. And in many ways, it comes from a perspective of you know, somebody who spent 20, 25 years campaigning for climate action, for social justice, and for environmental protection. It comes from a space of hearing a lot of people from my younger child who's a school striker through to people of my generation, through to people of my parents' generation, there's a tendency, I think, in the last few years to feel like it's the end of the world and to give up hope and to say, we're done, we're done here. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And what I really wanted to do with this book is say, it doesn't have to be the end of the world but it does have to be the end of the world as we know it. Because if we keep on as we're going, or if we tinker around the edges and kind of try to somehow keep trusting that this political and economic system that has got us into this mess can get us out of it, then it may well be the end of the world for us. It may well be. But we have everything we need, socially, economically, politically, we have everything we need to change that. We have it all at our fingertips. We've been doing it in so many ways, in our own lives, in our own communities. We've been doing the things that we need to do to create the new world that will enable us not just to survive, but to thrive and to go ahead into the future together in a world which will be safe and just and happy and fun for everyone. 
And I do that on the basis of the metaphor of ecology. The idea that if we can learn from the way ecology works, then we can construct social and economic and political systems on that basis, learning from how indigenous peoples in Australia but all around the world have done it. That it's about learning how the natural world works. The natural world is based on absolute interdependence of all of the different parts. It's based on diversity within that interdependence and the important understanding that interdependence without diversity is nothing. Interdependence without diversity is kind of a grey goo of just everything you know, mucked up together. Diversity without interdependence is meaningless too because it's just these separate siloed bits. And when you think about diversity and interdependence together, you get the understanding that everything changes. Everything is always changing and creating complexity and learning from that. So I thought I'd read a little bit of an excerpt which goes into that idea of how, how the metaphor of ecology can help us understand democracy and politics. And then we can talk a lot more about it. In his beautiful book about Australian bird life, where song began, ornithologist Tim Lowe has provided an unintentionally perfect metaphor for the state of our democracy. Lowe describes how the magnificent diversity of Australian bird species co-evolved with each other and with the continent's diverse plants and climates. The diversity of bird life depends on the interconnected diversity of plant life and vice versa. Some birds specialise in acacias, others in eucalypts or casuarinas. The mix of grasses, shrubs and mature trees provides the healthy ecosystem at various scales needed for a range of birds to thrive. But over large parts of Australia, that diverse interdependence has been trashed. Small stands of mature eucalypts remain around the edges of monoculture paddocks, playing fields and lawns. In this impoverished, disconnected landscape, one particularly aggressive species of bird thrives, chasing away many of the others. The name of this bird? The noisy miner. I mean, could you ask for a better metaphor for Australia's fossil fuel dominated democracy? <laughs> a healthy democracy, like a healthy ecosystem, is diverse, interdependent and ever-changing where the ecosystem has a diverse range of species, wide variation within those species and inextricable interconnection between them, the democracy has a wide range of participants and a broad array of different fora in which they participate, share ideas and co-design their common future. In a healthy democracy, all voices are listened to, building trust in each other and in the system. The small number of voices, which will inevitably be noisier than others or even occasionally aggressive, can be managed, making the discussion creative and enjoyable. Like the voices, the fora themselves need to be interconnected in order to coordinate efforts, face up to the shared challenges and extend trust. And the structures and rules need to be revisited frequently to make sure they remain fit for purpose and rebuild active trust. 
like ecosystems around the globe, however, the self-organizing trust-based democratic commons humans developed over millennia have been enclosed for private profit and personal power. Their diversity has been diminished, different voices and opinions chased away, opportunities to be heard and fora for discussion narrowed, and like the famous Monty Python sketch, constructive debate has withered into yes it is, no it isn't argument. With only ministerial offices and boardrooms remaining for major decisions to be made in, we shouldn't be surprised that noisy miners have come to dominate our politics the same way their namesakes have our suburbs, leaving us with government of the fossil fuel industry, by the fossil fuel industry, for the fossil fuel industry. But it's amazing how quickly you can bring wildlife back to the suburbs with a bit of bush regeneration. Plant appropriate diverse shrubs, trees and grasses and see an explosion of joy and beauty as parrots, partilotes, kookaburras and wrens join the noisy miners. We need to do this bush regeneration with our democracy. And that's what the book's about. We've been a town of noisy miners ourselves mm. in the past. I want to ask people in the audience, this sense of this notion of commons is actually all around us. Who, for example, here is wearing an item of clothing that is not new, that was gifted from someone else, pre-loved, they maybe got it from an op shop or a jumble sale. Anyone? Probably about half the people in the room, me too. Who is a member of a community swap share exchange group or uses one on, online? Once again, at least half of us. Who's ever been to the local repair cafe? I noticed Chris Hooper's in the room who set it up. What you're doing is all part of the commons. It's all part of exchange that happens outside of the so-called free market, the business world that we live in. It happens outside of government regulation, largely, and it happens outside of the major institutions that we live with. So this notion of commons that Tim says is part of the solution is what we're doing already, and I want to hear more from you, Tim, about why that's so important in the future that we're going to create for ourselves. Yeah, thank you. That's really kind of the crux of it for me in many ways. One of the things that I think has been the success of the current political system, a system that I define in the book as an anti-ecological system. So ecology is based on the ideas of diversity, interdependence and constant change. We're living in a system which is based on the idea of individuality and separation, of domination rather than interdependence, hierarchical domination. And the pretense of permanence, this idea that we can have certainty, that we can have permanence and things will go on. One of the things that that system has created is this binary idea of left or right, of collective or individual, of state or market. There's all sorts of these binaries that flow through our system. And if we think about 
For instance, the individual versus the collective. In an ecological way of understanding the word, every individual is innately part of a collective and every collective is a group of individuals. And in fact, there's no such thing as an individual because more than half of the cells in your body don't have human DNA anyway, and they're constantly changing. And you know, our skin is porous in both directions. We are all ecosystems that are part of other ecosystems. The state and market binary is similar in that way. It's imposed on us, on our way of thinking, this idea that there's nothing beyond one of those two. And one of the thinkers I return to throughout the book quite a lot is the Nobel Prize winning economist Eleanor Ostrom for her theory around how the commons work. And this idea is how communities self-manage and coordinate in this beautiful model that she calls polycentrism, where communities coordinate between their communities as well as within. And that this is a system which is neither state nor market. It is separate from the two of them, and it is a much more effective way of organising, of coming together, of sharing resources, than anything that the state or the market can provide. Because both of those are hierarchical dominating systems that tell us what to do and which deprive us of our agency, which deprive us of our capacity to actually have a say, and which in doing that, damage themselves, because in depriving us as the members of the community, as the citizens, from being part of decision making, they calcify and they stop getting the important feedback that they need and they become more fragile and more prone to collapse, which is why our economic system is constantly in crisis. It's why our political system is constantly in crisis, because it's trying to make up for the fact that it's excluding most people most of the time. The Commons does the opposite. The Commons is about building systems that are based on every person having agency together in a community that has agency together, that is connected to every other community that has agency together, that is jointly coming together to work out what they want to do. So this means, for instance, that our democracy, that democracy isn't just about turning up to vote once every few years for the least worst option and then being told to you know, piss off and come back in another few years. Democracy is about our buy nothing groups. It's about our community gardens, our school PNCs, our families. It's however we come together to make decisions in all sorts of ways. This is the commons. And this is what we see spring up in response to emergencies every time, fires, floods, the pandemic. The community starts to self-organize because we want to do it. We want to help each other and we want others to help us. And then government comes in and tells us what to do or corporations come in and, and try to supplant it because they're providing a cheap way of getting stuff delivered instead of having the community support you. So the commons is this extraordinary place which we're all part of, we always are. And we need to work out how we can embrace that and work out models of building that and cultivating it such that it becomes the system that we need to replace the current one. I want to invite people, if they've read the book, or even if you're intrigued by the book and what Tim's just said, to ask him some questions too. Here we go. Hi, my name's Martha, and I've lived in Castlemaine for a while. I've been paying attention to your definition of the commons, and you know that the commons didn't last in Scotland because the king made some other decisions. And I think it's possible that that can happen here, and do you know a way around it? We can only vote for candidates that the campaign funders 
have approved of, and that we don't even know how much money they give until well after the election, which seems really corrupt, and that we're just sort of the mask on the front of the oligopoly. It doesn't just seem corrupt, it is corrupt, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Look, the history of the commons, as I put it in my book, the written history of our world really is the history of the enclosure of the commons and the commons fighting back against that enclosure. And yeah, what we see is that dominating hierarchical power holders are always trying to enclose commons in all sorts of ways. And they've been enabled to do that mostly through the uneven distribution of technology, frankly, over the course of history. And that's one of the things that gives me hope in a sense, is that technology is actually more evenly distributed than it has been before. And we have the amazing capacity to, to coordinate across the globe more than ever before to tell the stories of what's happening. The enclosure of the Highland Commons in Scotland and in Ireland was able to happen at least in part because the British Empire was able to divide and conquer. They were able to take on community by community without those communities being able to organise very effectively amongst themselves. The same thing happened with the process of colonisation around the world. You take on one community, you separate one area from another and you take them on one by one until you've accumulated them all. I think we've got an extraordinary capacity now to organise really, really well, share our ideas and start to work it out together. That's one of the solutions. One example of that was what I was going to mention is that I'm going shortly to Korea to be part of the, the fifth global congress of, of the Greens, which is where Greens parties all around the world are actually coming together to meet to talk about what we're doing and learn from each other and exchange ideas and that kind of thing is happening to an extraordinary extent at the moment and we're able to share in real time all sorts of things that are going on. But the other thing I was going to say is that one of the other philosophers I refer to a lot through my book is Hannah Arendt, who was an extraordinary moral philosopher, German-Jewish woman who fled the Nazis to America. And she wrote a lot about the difference between different ideas of power and how they work. So she took on Mao Zedong's famous line that power comes from the barrel of a gun. And she said, no, the only thing that really comes from the barrel of a gun is obedience. But it's obedience that comes with a deep lack of trust and an unwillingness to be obedient. True power comes from communities coming together and acting in concert and working out how to do things together. And the relevance of that is that the more those in power rely on coercion, the more they force you to do it, the more they actually drive opposition to them. And I think that's happening at the moment. I really do. I think what we're seeing through things like the massive explosion of the Black Lives Matter movement in response to the filmed murder of African-Americans by police, the tremendous response to the imprisonment of Assange and things like that, we're seeing communities 
seeing the coercion and responding to it and fighting back and demanding that change happens. So I think we're in a really interesting and exciting space here where there is a moment coming for transformative change if we learn how to seize it. It's not to say it's going to happen, it's really bloody scary, but I think there's a possibility. Another question down here. My question is, what do you think about organic thinking can you, sorry, before you hand the microphone back, define what you mean by that, please? So, organic farming and regenerative right. agriculture. Yep. Yeah, cool. That's what I thought you meant. I just wanted to check. Yeah, look, so I speak about regenerative agriculture in particular in the book as a really interesting example of how transformative change can happen and how, in a sense, it's a model for me of what we can do in democracy because it's about embracing a different way of relating to the land and to each other. And I think organic farming does a similar thing at its best. I would also note that organic farming in particular has actually been enclosed for profit. <laughs> and there are corporations that are using the, the rules around it to make a lot of money and extract value out of the farmers. So this kind of thing is happening all the time. Capitalism is very good at working out how to co-opt things that are going on are on the ground. But I think it's a really crucial model for how we make change and it's going to be vital. One of the aspects of regenerative agriculture that I think is wonderful is how it actually is starting to happen in urban and semi-urban environments as well. And that's a really beautiful thing. That's one of the beautiful things happening in Canberra at the moment. There's quite an explosion of regenerative farming going on in our backyards and on our street verges and things like that. People taking these monoculture grass lawns and replacing them with beautiful regenerative food plots. It's just such a, a fantastic pointer to how we can survive together and thrive together beautifully. Oh, hello. When you said there's no such thing as an individual, could you elaborate on that? And could you also inform us how that impacts your notion of how democracy works? Yeah, look, I'm deliberately being provocative with that kind of idea. There are, of course, individuals, but what we need to understand is that that's a relative notion. And it's a notion that is entirely wrapped up in the idea of interdependence and change. That, yes, I can consider myself an individual, and in reality, I am to an extent. I am a separate creature from you, but I'm also made up of a whole lot of cells, which are also individual cells. And those cells are dividing and dying and falling off and recreating at a great rate. And many of those cells don't have human DNA in them at all. And some of those I'm ingesting, they've all come from other individuals, whether it's individual plants or something else that's around. And it's this constant give and take that every individual is fundamentally dependent on and interconnected with every other individual. So the more we consider ourselves and demand that consideration of being an individual that is somehow separate and able to exist apart from other individuals, that's the problem that I'm trying to get to. That considering ourselves in that way is denying the fundamental interrelatedness and interdependence of our individuality. So yes, I guess this is my argument with the individual versus collective binary. It's not that there isn't such a thing as individuality and there isn't such a thing as collectivism. It's that they are fundamentally entwined and thinking of them as opposites is the problem. 
It's really hard because this is one of the things that I think is really important. One of the reasons I wanted to write the book is to get it clear in my own head and kind of try to start these conversations. Our system doesn't want us to think like this. And we've been taught not to think like this. And our politics and our economic system insists that we don't think like this. But our science is increasingly telling us that it's right, that it's reality. You know, quantum physics is telling us that there's no such thing as being an independent observer because observation changes reality. Like all of these things that we've been told and educated in, we're now coming to understand are not a real reflection of the world. And that's really challenging to start to think that way. It's challenging for me, it's challenging for everyone. I love that you're talking about these things coexisting and that we already have a commons, but we may not be very aware of the fact that we're existing in a commons because it feels like all the power is above. You're advocating for increasing power of commons and people participating in that more as a form of democracy. And you're also in the Greens and actively involved in our federal <laughs> political system. I just wonder how you resolve that for yourself. Do you see the Greens as a disruptive force or do you see a future for our current political system or do you see it evolving? Nice one. Yeah, it's a tension and it's, I hope, a constructive tension and it's something I think about a lot. So yes, I have been involved in the Greens for 20 years or so. I've been a staffer for Christine Milne for six years. I then kind of really burned out of politics and kind of moved away and I've run for election as a candidate in the last two federal elections all while being a confirmed anarchist. So yeah, how does that work? It works in a couple of ways. One is that I do think the model of change that I try to articulate is, is one that argues with both the idea of reformism and revolution. That says that these are both models of change that are kind of based in hierarchical models of power. So revolution obviously is based in a hierarchical model. There is one top-down governing class. We need to get rid of them and replace them with another. Reformism is based on hierarchical power too because reformism is based on building group power to ask those in power to do something for us. And it's, kind of, it's building power in a way which then gives it away. And I argue for a mode that says we can actually use the current system to transform the current system. And there are a multitude of ways to do that that I try to explore through the book. Essentially, I think there are ways that we can find points of intervention in the system to create the space for transformative change. Some of those, for instance, are through the existing political system. If we can build enough momentum to absolutely drag this government to raise the rate of job seeker to a livable level and to get rid of these horrific punitive mutual obligation systems. We will ensure that the very large number of people in this country who are currently struggling to survive will actually have agency in their lives and will have the capacity to do more. And this, if we mobilise well around it, can create space for people to become more involved in their communities, to support each other, to do mutual aid in various ways. And if we campaign for this to happen, not only through the parliament, but in our communities, in ways which aren't only mobilising our communities to demand that their politicians act, but are actually mobilising the communities to help each other. 
that's where we start to see really interesting things happen. And that's where I think we are starting to see interesting things happening in our politics with things like the rise of the community independence movement and in particular, I think, with the rise of the, the Greens campaigns in Brisbane, what delivered those three seats in Brisbane was a form of community organising that we haven't seen in this country for a very long time. It wasn't just knocking on doors and asking people to vote for the Greens. It was knocking on doors and asking people what they were concerned about, finding out what their key issues were, reporting that back to the community, building these connections, bringing more and more people in to volunteer for the Greens to do that outreach, and then you hear, oh, there's an empty lot there that people are objecting to the development of, and it's kind of a grassy mess. We're gonna go in there and just build a guerrilla community garden and start growing food and see what happens. We'll start growing food and then, oh, a pandemic hits. We're gonna deliver boxes of food that we're growing there to the people who are struggling around the community. A flood hits. Greens are knocking on doors around the flood hit area of Brisbane, not to say, can you vote for us, but can we help you? Can we mop your floors and sort your things out for you? And you're building a model of politics which is still within the electoral system, but is far bigger than electoral politics. It's about building a community creating connection, creating these forms of social cohesion and these new models. They now have spokespeople in the parliament to talk for them, who are also spending a lot of their time in the community doing the mutual aid. You know, Max Chandler Mather is spending most of his political allowance on free breakfasts for the poorest schools in his electorate. That's the politics that we can do if we choose to go in that direction. Rather than saying, I want you to elect me to go into Parliament and advocate for you, I want you to elect me to be a facilitator and enabler for you to do the things that you want to do. That, I think, is a model of politics that we can use that helps to invert the system and transform it from within. Before our next question, I just want to jump in, if I may, and make a connection between what's happening in that conversation and that answer about the political process and elected representative democracy, what's the connection between that arm of activism and growth of the commons and growing our veggies and sharing them amongst each other? Where does that progress? Where does that arm move up the scale in terms of us grabbing agency in our lives and making decisions for ourselves that matter to us on a bigger scale. For example, the development down the road that's entirely oversized and inappropriate, or the energy needs of a community that can't be met unless we collectively organise to generate our own energy on spare land. But how do we make that connection? It's so important that you draw out that that's the point, that I think one of the crucial things is that in electoral politics, there's a tendency for candidates to, to step forward and say, vote for me because I will fix all of your problems. Um, Helen Haynes articulated it incredibly clearly, the member for Indi, to me when I interviewed her for the book. She basically said, I reject that model of politics altogether. And I say to the community, elect me and we will work together and you will come to me and ask for connection and advice and we'll work together to solve your problems and I will help you find out ways to solve your own problems together 
And I think this is the crucial thing because, yeah, our political system tells us that democracy is you get to vote for somebody to tell you what to do. And we need to reclaim that and say, no, democracy is us making decisions collectively together. Sometimes we need representatives, delegates, to go and make decisions on our behalf in various ways. But we need to hold the power. And there's one really extraordinary transformative example of that that I use through the book in various ways. And it's what happened in Barcelona over the last decade or so. Spain was one of the hardest hit by the global financial crisis in the world. And they had, in the early 2010s, they had mass unemployment, 25% national unemployment, 50% youth unemployment. And they had people unable to stay in their homes, being evicted from their homes. They had people unable to feed their families, unable to get medical care, like many around the world. And like in other parts of the world, there was a mass protest movement that arose from this. They called it the movement of the squares in Spain, but there was the Occupy movement in the US and, and in parts of Australia. There was the Sintangma Square in, in Athens. And a lot of those insisted on a political approach. And what I find really fascinating is that in Athens, the protests led to the development of a political party which ran for election, won election with all sorts of promises, then faced the EU, telling them what they could and couldn't do and fell apart. They blinked, they fell apart, and it was a complete disaster. In Barcelona, they took the opposite approach. In Barcelona, they started with mutual aid. They started with squatters groups defending those people who were being evicted from their homes and standing there with them and saying, no, you have a right to a home, you have a right to stay here. They started with food cooperatives of all kinds, growing food in the streets, distributing that food, making sure that people had what they needed to eat. They had medical cooperatives where people could pay it forward so that others could get the free care that they needed. And they were finding themselves blocked by government a lot of the time. So with the municipal election coming up, they came together and said, we actually need to do something about this. And they collectively developed a political platform, not a party, they called it a platform. Barcelona in Comú, Barcelona in Common, interestingly enough. And they ran for election and they won. They won the government of Barcelona in 2015. And immediately they set about devolving power from City Hall. For instance, the water supply had been privatised. They set about saying, we're not going to call this nationalising, we're going to re-municipalise the water supply. They took it back under the ownership of the city, but they gave the management of the city to the community, to the blocks of the city to manage their own water. They continually handed back power to the community to support the mutual aid-based organising that was going on around them. And they were re-elected in 2019, and they're facing election again this year, and I've got every finger and toe crossed that they're going to win again. Apparently, they're doing well. And this is, to me, an extraordinary example of where grassroots organising that then becomes political can become transformative. The model of change that I talk about in the book is this four-step process of sowing the seeds of the new world you want to live in, and that's things like defending people being evicted or growing community gardens or whatever it is. And it's then cultivating the healthy soils around you to make sure that others can replicate what you're doing. Not capitalist growth where you say, we're doing well, so we're just gonna build and build and build and get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's saying, we're doing really well. Do you wanna do something similar? Here's how we did it, you can learn from us. 
and helping others do it and connecting these different ways of getting involved. It's about withdrawing consent from the existing system, saying we do not accept that your model of government and economy has power over us. We're going to take it back. We do not accept that anymore. So this is where I think urban agriculture and, and community agriculture is such a prime example of that. It's saying we're growing food for each other because we like doing it. It's fun, it's good, it's tasty, but we're also withdrawing consent from a model of food which says the way you get food is turning up to the supermarket and buying it from them and they've extracted value from the farmers and the farmers have extracted value from the land and it's this extractive model of food. We withdraw our consent from that. We're not doing that anymore. We're doing it ourselves. And then it starts to build institutional structures around that. And this is where Barcelona gets really exciting because they've now held a bunch of fearless cities congresses working with other municipal governments around the world to help them learn from their model. Communities around the world coming together to say, that's really great. And this isn't just about local community doing it better. Barcelona talks about globalist municipalism in that what they're doing is about addressing the climate crisis. What they're doing is about addressing the refugee crisis. It's about addressing war and the military industrial complex. It's about in addressing the extractive nature of our economy and fixing all of it and sharing it and working out how we can transform everything together. I think I might instantly move to Barcelona, actually. <laughs> no, do it here. <laughs> well, I was, was going to come back to Australia, and I was, you know, there's always a, a problem in the, um, the ecology of the left. I mean, there's a lot of rapacious birds in that particular aviary. You know, you've got the ALP, and then you've got the Greens, and somehow they just never get on. And I fear that this is a, a sum total disaster for us all, given that if you were to have proper representation of Greens in power, there would be more than the number of seats that we've got because the way that the preferences go, we don't have anything like the representation for people who are interested in Greens issues. So how can the Greens, Greens you guys, and the ALP actually work together to you know, continue to be in power for as long as possible, but also to get some of the things that people really want done? We're tired of shouty, shouty, I think is the short version of that question. Is that right, Suzanne? The problem we have is that our political system is a fundamentally adversarial one, which is a zero-sum game. It's built on this idea that compromise is a sign of weakness, frankly, and the way you win in politics is to bash your opponent into submission. And within that system, I find it hard to picture a way that we can do it better. One of the models which a lot of people talk about and you kind of adverted to is the idea of proportional representation in politics where we can actually have a better representative model that reflects the will of the people. And I don't reject that. I think it is really important that we go there, absolutely, to the extent that I think representative democracy actually holds the solutions. I come from Canberra, where we have proportional representation in our local parliament. We have multi-member electorates, five-member electorates. And in that system, we have six Greens out of 25 in our assembly. And they're in government. They've been in government for 14 years now. Three Greens ministers 
in the government. And I don't want to talk it down too much because it is very exciting. I do think it's the best government in Australia. It's doing some really fantastic things. We've got 100% renewable electricity across the city. We've got a great rollout of light rail going on. We've, we've decriminalised drug possession and, and made it a health issue. There's a lot of really important steps going on. But it's not transformative. It's not really changing the way government is working and it's not going at the pace that it needs to in a whole lot of areas. And one of the things that's happening there that I've noted very much is that the previous two terms ago, there was one Green in the Assembly. The next term, there were two Greens in the Assembly and one minister. And that minister was able to develop a really cooperative relationship with Labor, where they were able to kind of let him get away with a whole lot of stuff, primarily in the climate space. Then in the 2020 election, we won six seats. And all of a sudden, what happened? The Greens kind of went, oh, well, we get to have a lot more of a say in how things are done, surely, don't we? Labor turned around and started making life incredibly difficult and they have been bullying and wedging the Greens helter-skelter the whole way through this term because suddenly they see the Greens as a threat. And this is not, I'm not kind of meaning to dish, on, dish out on Labor here. This is the system. It's how the, the, an adversarial political system is designed in this way, that it enforces fighting amongst ourselves. It tells us that we have to be combative. What we need is to take decision-making out of that context and make it much more deliberative. Instead of relying on the decision-making system which is based on that adversarialism, one which is based on actually coming together around a table and working out what to do. And I don't think that's going to happen in representative democracy until our community is doing it all over the place and until we show the way and start to do it ourselves. And that's what the Commons does. The Commons gets us practising a democratic mode that is about deliberation. It's about working out how to cooperate, working better ways of doing things together. And then we'll start to replace the representatives and we'll start to replace the way they do it. That's how I believe the change will happen. Another question over here. Yes, I think I moved to Castlemaine just a year ago because I found the commons here and it was strong and alive and thank you for, I've never really used that term but I think that's what attracted me. But if climate change and things of that nature are imminent and we have passed the threshold of, say, biodiversity, you know, we're in this mass extinction and, and things of that sort, this model that you propose, is it quick enough? Is it efficient enough that we can make the change? Yeah, your thoughts. For those who have a dire look at the, the future, yeah. what, what do you propose? I do too. Asking for a friend. I might, I might read a little excerpt from towards the end of the book rather than ramble about it. This is a chapter entitled, There's No Time Left Not To Do Everything. Isn't it too late for that? We were at the National Climate Emergency Summit in Melbourne in that fleeting moment in February 2020 while the horrific summer of fire and smoke was still lingering in our clothes and minds and before the COVID pandemic arrived. 
we'd spent two days discussing the need for emergency scale climate action and how to make it happen. I was on a panel about citizen action, arguing for what this book proposes, that we need to cultivate grassroots democracy and sharing economies, embedding ecological values through community building projects as a critical path to urgent and deep climate action. The question was put to me, isn't it too late for the deep change you're talking about? Don't we just need governments to declare an emergency and get on with it? In over two decades working for climate action, I've tried pretty much everything. I've done door knocking, marches and stalls. I've lobbied governments and corporations through meetings, letter writing and public engagement. I've been involved in blockading coal infrastructure. I've worked in parliaments to negotiate better legislation. I've run for election and I've disrupted parliament from the public gallery. I've published research papers and press releases and opinion pieces. I've helped build alliances with students and unions and faith groups. I've worked in the community, taking practical action to reduce emissions, joined a renewable energy cooperative. I've spent painstaking hours taking political journalists through the details of reports from the IPCC. I've even written songs about it and convinced other musicians to become advocates. Over the years, when I've suggested that we need to think bigger than stopping this mine, taxing or regulating these companies, or electing these people and start working for systemic change, the response from big important men, almost always, in the climate movement has far too often been a dismissive, we don't have time for that, and I don't mean that you're suggesting it dismissively. It's been easily a decade since I was first told we don't have time for that. A decade in which progress on climate action has continued to be, well, glacial is no longer the right term. So I was maybe a bit heated when I threw the question back to the room. Does anyone here think that's going to happen? Does anyone think that there's any realistic chance that the current federal government or the next one or the next one will declare a climate emergency and act on it with the seriousness and urgency that it requires? Nervous tittering, one or two shouts of no, not a single person raised their hand. Among the 250 passionate climate activists in the room, nobody, not even the questioner, said yes. So that's where we are. We all know it, don't we? We don't have time to keep demanding and hoping that governments will do what we know they won't do. We don't have time not to rewrite the rules. We don't have time not to change everything. The climate emergency is here. Ecological collapse is well underway. Shit is hitting all sorts of fans. No matter what we do now, the loss we face will be immeasurably immense and the grief will push us to breaking point. And at the same time, the potential is extraordinary because the things we have to do to turn around the destruction of the natural world are also what we have to do to enable us to survive what's coming and to address the interwoven social, economic and political crises. We're in the same state with the attacks on democracy, with spiralling inequality, with the rise of the politics of hate. Participatory democracy, cultivationist economy, systems of coexistence, and interdependence with nature. These are the solutions to our crises and our tools to survive the crises. 
This can genuinely be the most exciting time to be alive because we have the social, technological and political capacity to do extraordinary things and because the institutions and norms that have constrained us for so long are all up for grabs. It's the end of the world as we know it. It doesn't have to be the end of the world. He can write, can't he? Oh. Another question up the back here. That is very eloquent, and I'm sorry I haven't read your book, but talk to us about the tax system and local level democracy. At the moment, we all really benefit from a long-term federal tax system that tries to redistribute or has tried to redistribute income. Doesn't do a very good job, but you talked about job seeker. The hospital system, we all benefit from it. It requires expertise. I'm concerned with local level democracy, whilst I want to be in charge of my community too, what happens when all the money's in the North Shore in Sydney and those communities do really well, they can afford to send their kids to private schools. What do we do with the taxation system in local level democracy? Yeah, really good question. And it's a, to me, the answer is about thinking through the transformation process, how it's going to work. I am very much of the opinion that many of the problems that we have in our political and economic system in Australia have happened because since Federation, a series of High Court decisions pushed all of the taxation power up to the Commonwealth level and took it out of the states. And we've centralised more and more and more of that power in Australia. And that's the system we're working in now. Absolutely. What I think we need to do is work out points of intervention that will help us to redistribute wealth such that we can do the localization better. And even once we've done that, we're going to need interconnection. This is the point that Ostrom makes about polycentrism, that you mustn't ever just have everything so local that it becomes parochial and you end up building more walls and you end up creating these exclusive systems which are unequal. So you will always need systems that interconnect and share resources and, and things between them. But there is a transitional process of working out how to get there. And I do think that a lot of that is going to involve keeping up the pressure to make our tax system and social equity system more redistributive and working out ways of doing that. Keeping up the pressure in such a way that isn't about giving up our power to do that ourselves. Keeping up the pressure in such a way that says, we don't trust you, our government, to actually do this, but we're going to keep demanding it and we're going to work out ways of, of shoving it in to make it happen more and more that process is starting to happen. For instance, one of the great examples that I love is the growth of the Community Renewable Energy Cooperative Movement, for instance, in poorer areas of Newcastle. There's a bunch of great examples of small pubs and clubs saying, we want to put solar panels on our roof because it's the right thing to do and because it'll save us on our energy bills. We don't have the money. Starting up a crowdfunder and people in the wealthy eastern suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne are donating to those crowdfunders and it is a form of redistribution. It's not an enforced redistribution. It's not the solution. It's absolutely not the solution. But it's part of a model which can start to see how these things can maybe over time work. In response to the health system one, there's a different answer that I have, which is that there will always be a need for 
centralized systems like that. You know, one of the really important things about deliberative processes, for instance, is that some people think that participatory democracy and deliberative democracy means that you expect everybody to be an expert and that everybody's view in the group is equally valid. One of the things that's been demonstrated really effectively is that good participatory deliberative processes enable people to understand what they don't know and seek advice from people who do know it and bring it into the group. Really great participatory processes show that. They bring in you know, the health experts, the technological experts, the ecological experts to advise the group and share this. The same thing to me is the answer to the centralised hospitals thing. That we're going to need experts. Of course we need experts. We'll always need experts. And what we'll need is for groups, for communities, to support that process happening amongst them, not just for themselves, but for the groups across the area. One of the most exciting examples of this for me is what's happening in Kurdistan, in Rojava, where in the, the wreckage of the failed state of Syria, essentially, this one of the most persecuted groups in the world, the Kurds, they'd been fighting a Maoist revolutionary battle for decades and failing. And they came across the work of Murray Bookchin, the great American anarchist theorist who came up with the idea of municipal confederalism. And they just set about building their own nation from the grassroots up, which is based on city blocks coordinating together, having their own organising groups that make their own decisions and coordinating across them. And they now have a nation of two million people governed in this way, two million people governed in groups of about 200 that coordinate across them. And they organise their own decisions, but they also coordinate such that they run school curricula and they organise hospitals and they organise cleanups after the Syrian government bomb them. And they work it out together. It's grassroots up. All of the power remains with the people. They make their decisions together and they coordinate to make sure those things happen. That to me is an end game and the transition is really bloody hard to piece together. But I think we can work it out, I hope. <laughs> Another question, Emma. Is Yes, hi. I started thinking about this question when the word democracy was triggering me to be resistant. <laughs> and that's actually a, a word that comes from a very European, very ancient, it's very tied into the Westminster parliamentary system, which means it's deeply tied into the colonial project. I also think that the solutions that you're putting forward are things that are inherent in First Nations knowledges and ways of being, pre-colonial knowledges and ways of being. And I'm just wondering on your thinking around how we can possibly change the language, change some of those deeply colonial structures and concepts that you're looking at changing, but I think actually changing some of that language around it and introducing those concepts into these sorts of conversations can actually deepen the work that you're talking about. Yeah, love it. One of the words that I try to avoid precisely for that reason is politics, in fact. Partly because politics does make a lot of people shudder as a word, but also partly because it comes from the word for city, polis. And I think we need to kind of extract ourselves from that way of thinking. Democracy is a word that I still love, and I think we should and could reclaim it. Demos kratos, it's power of the people, and we can choose how we define that. As you say, it carries a lot of baggage. We're told democracy simply means turning up to vote for the least worst option and that's it. 
Whereas if we start to embrace what it really means, people power, then we can potentially change it. But I take your point that it is something, it's, it's a word we need to think about and possibly it is a word we need to move on from. One of my approaches to that, that I string through the book and through my thinking is that I love discussions like this. I think it's really crucial that people who are already thinking in these terms come together to discuss this really deeply, dig into it, work out how it becomes transformative, all of that kind of thing. Most of the change is not going to happen through people like us talking about it. Most of the change is going to come through people like us going out in the community and doing it and bringing other people in together to do it. It's not about going out and telling people this is how we're going to do it, this is what we think we should do. An example that I have of that is I set up in Canberra the first of the Buy Nothing groups that we have there, which is a an online-based swap, give, share group where we post things that we don't want anymore and some, want to give them away to someone or we post a request, we need something and, and can we borrow or, or have. It's a model which is based on hyper-local community building, actually, in the Buy Nothing ethic. The Buy Nothing ethic is all about actually having conversations with people about it and building relationships and working stuff out together and cultivating a commons through it. So I set up the first group with just like a couple of dozen friends and within a few weeks it had grown to a few hundred people. Within a couple of months it had grown to a couple of thousand and we ended up kind of splitting up into smaller groups and doing it again. And now, a decade later, there's I think at last count, there were 17 groups in Canberra with a total of 44,000 members, which is 10% of the city's population. And what I love in that practice is that it's people from all walks of life, all political philosophies, just getting on with doing it. And when I was still the admin of my group, I used to love every now and then kind of dropping into a comment how fun is this great radical anti-capitalist organising we're doing? And people would say, what the hell? No, it isn't. Oh, shit, so it is. <laughs> and it's not that we're going out and telling people that we want to change the system and all of that. It's doing it together. And that's how we bring people into this new world, by showing them that it's actually really cool. It's actually really fun. It's going to be better when we do it together. So yeah, it's kind of this, this twofold thing. I agree, sometimes in these kinds of rooms, maybe we're going to need to move away from the word democracy. In the other rooms out there, we don't need to use it at all. We don't need to talk about it, we just do it. Tim, a way of tying up that idea is the way that you tie up the book. The last chapter is actually called The Journey is the Destination. Can you talk about that, that non-linear kind of way of thinking which goes back, as Emma points out, to First Nations people? that we don't necessarily progress in a way that hierarchies have taught us and that the doing and the being is the success or leads to the success. We're taught to think in this very linear way that change happens in a predictable, linear manner. In ecosystems, it doesn't work like that. Evolution is not this slow, linear progression. Evolution is punctuated equilibrium. It kind of is settled in a certain way for millions of years. And there's change bubbling away in all sorts of different places that, that you can see if you look for it. And then all of a sudden, flip, 
it's in a different state. It's moved somewhere completely different. And I think that's happening in our communities. I think it's happening in our democracies, in our economies, that there's so much going on already on the ground. And the best way to get to the better world that we want is to cultivate the conditions. That's what happens in ecology, to cultivate the conditions for that world to emerge. So that's what it's all about, seeding the ideas of change, cultivating the soil, weeding the ground by withdrawing our consent from the stuff that we don't like. And we have no idea of predicting when and how it will happen, but that's the best that we can do. Do it ourselves, because it's gonna make our lives better anyway. It's, it's more fun. There's more abundance in that mode of being than there is in our current way. So we just do it. We do it ourselves. We do it together in our communities and we help others replicate it around us. And we see that by living the journey, we make it much more likely that the world that we want emerges. Instead of demanding that destination, we live the journey and that becomes the destination. The means are the ends. That's another one of those age-old 19th, 20th century arguments. Do the ends justify the means? Well, no. The means are the ends. That's how we do it. That's how we get there. So if there's a call to action out of tonight, it's connect, belong, do, and link up network with all of those around you. There are probably as many groups doing that as there are people in this room, in this very neighbourhood and shire, yeah? And there are plenty of ways for us all to do that. So let's keep doing and being, and that's the journey, and that's, that's what will get us where we need to go. Thanks so much, Tim. Great conversation. There are books if you haven't read them. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. So that was Tim Hollow, author of Living Democracy, an ecological manifesto for the end of the world as we know it. He was in conversation at the Tap Room in Castlemaine with Jim Buckle and introduced by Alex Kelly. There were a lot of really interesting things mentioned in this conversation. I have gone down a couple of internet wormholes looking up the links for you and <laughs> please follow the links at your own risk. You can find these in the podcast description on your app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. Don't forget to get your Saltgrass Ethical t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, posters and puzzles. And there are new designs all the time. Go to saltgrasspodcast.com and click on merch if you want to have a look at what's available. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name's Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.